Good morning, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to bring you God's word this morning. And that word today comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through chapter 5, verse 3. Please give your full attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, I pray that you would help me to rightly and faithfully handle your word. Holy Spirit, would you plant your word within us that it would make a difference in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Thessalonian church was a young church comprised of young believers, and yet Paul didn't shy away instructing them about the events that will take place at the end times. Although they were young in their faith, Paul knew it was vital to their faith to inform them early on. And that is because an uninformed faith is an unstable faith and an unprepared faith. That's why earlier in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed. To that point, I want to say this. We don't want to wait until the end to talk about the end times. It's not wise to wait until things get really serious to take things seriously. We know that sometimes it does take something serious for us to take things seriously. And I think that's been the case in 2020. Maybe the passing of Kobe Bryant, it took something really serious for you to take seriously the fragility of life. Or maybe through this COVID season, it took something serious for you to take hand-washing seriously. And then, of course, there's George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and others. Maybe it took something serious for you to take injustice seriously and racism seriously. Yes, better late than never, but often later comes at a steeper cost. In terms of the end times and the return of Christ, you don't want to wait until you get to that bridge to cross it. It'll be too late. Paul didn't wait until later to instruct the Thessalonians. He taught them at the beginning of their faith about the end of times. He basically told them, this is what's going to happen if Jesus returns today. Let me ask you this. If Jesus were to return today, what would happen to you? Well, that depends. And Paul spells that out in this letter. And we're going to learn that together this morning. The first thing that's going to happen is that there is going to be a celebration. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, this is exactly what's going to take place when Jesus returns. It's sort of a play-by-play. Jesus will descend from heaven and he's going to remain in the clouds. Then believers who died will rise first and then they will meet Jesus in the clouds. And then those who are alive will then follow Jesus and meet him in the clouds and all believers will be with the Lord forever. Forever where? 
in the clouds? The answer to that is no. I know some people, their picture of heaven is lounging around in the clouds, but that is actually not the case. Pastor Harold preached last week that the eternal dwelling place of believers is not up there. It's actually down here. Christ will return to earth, restore earth, and remain with believers on earth. Revelation chapter 21, we have a picture that the new city of Jerusalem descending from heaven down to earth. Why then are believers caught up in the air if they're going to return to earth anyways? And the reason for that is celebration. In Rome, the conquest of the military, they were not just for the politicians, but they were also for the citizens, all the citizens of the city. And so when the army would return from a campaign, maybe after years, they don't immediately enter the city. They would actually camp outside the city, send a messenger to the city to alert the people that the legions had returned. And when that news arrived, the people began to prepare to receive the conquering heroes. And when everything was ready, they would sound a trumpet. And then the, the citizens, they would actually go out of the city to where the army was camped, and they would join the soldiers marching back into the city. The idea behind that is that they are participating in the triumph and victory of the conquering army. Jesus is also going to return with the sound of a trumpet, and we will meet him in the clouds and in the air, and we will celebrate that victory with him as he returns to earth in this triumphant procession. If you think about it, that's the gospel. Just like how the Roman citizens, they didn't do anything to achieve victory. We don't do anything to achieve salvation. Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus resisted temptation. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus defeated sin and Satan. And yet we are justified. We are adopted. We are forgiven. We are made righteous. We are sanctified, loved, sealed, and saved. The gospel says we get everything Jesus earned. That even includes a glorious, physical, resurrected body, just like Jesus's on Easter Sunday. When Christ returns, 1 Corinthians 16 says that at the sound of a trumpet, again, the trumpet sound, we will be changed in a twinkling of an eye, that our perishable bodies will put on the imperishable, that our mortal bodies will put on immortality. And there's so much more to say about what will happen when Christ returns and what that means for believers, but I want to highlight one thing before we move on, and that's this. This is a permanent celebration and a permanent victory. We've all experienced a measure of victory, but in this broken world, our celebrations are cut short. They can be interrupted, and many things can interfere with that celebration. Maybe you find out that you're pregnant, you share that news, and you celebrate, only to find out months later you're no longer pregnant, and that celebration was interrupted. Maybe you find out you have cancer, you go through treatment, you're told you're cancer-free, you celebrate that, only to discover years after remission there's a recurrence, and your celebration is interrupted. Many of us are still fighting for victory. We have special needs families here at Christ Central. 
and parents have shared how they tirelessly advocate and litigate for their children's education and access. And that fight is far from over. For those who struggle with depression or loneliness or mental health, you have your streaks of, of good days and you celebrate those good days. And on those good days, it probably feels like you're on top of the world, but you've also had setbacks and you've had some really bad days as well. The same for those who struggle with chronic pain or disease. You're never pain-free. The best it gets is you're pain-free for now, but you're never pain-free forever. Maybe people thought that the end of the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and the Civil Rights Movement would have secured a permanent victory over injustice, racism, and segregation, and yet here we are in 2020, still haven't achieved that perfect, permanent victory. When and where is that permanent victory? When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That victory comes through Christ alone. Practically, what does this mean? Verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's the practical point. When we consider the return of Christ, this celebration and this permanent perfect victory, it encourages us. And I want to encourage you that when Christ returns, cancer will not return. Pain will not return. Guilt will not return. Traumatic memories will not return. You will never return to the hospital. You'll never return to the streets to protest again. Jesus will permanently triumph over disease, sin, death, disability, pain, depression, loneliness, trauma, injustice, and racism. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This celebration, however, isn't everything that's going to happen when Christ returns. The return of Christ isn't just about celebration. That is the case for believers. But there will also be a separation. And that's the second point. Separation. Paul's teaching on the return of Christ doesn't end with believers meeting Jesus in the clouds. There's a group of people still on earth. Who's left? Well, if all believers are caught up into the sky with the Lord, that means the remaining people on earth are unbelievers. There is a separation. Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse gives us a ground level view of what is actually taking place here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Matthew 24, 40. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. There's a separation. What is the purpose of this separation? In Matthew 25, it says that Jesus will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This separation 
is preparation for judgment. In chapter 5, verse 2, Paul refers to this day as the day of the Lord. That term, day of the Lord, it's known throughout the Old Testament as the final day of judgment. And so once separated, what will happen to unbelievers? Paul says in chapter 5, verse 3, then sudden destruction will come upon them. What is this destruction? It is a loaded term, but in short, he's speaking about everlasting hell. And hell, it is not a pleasant topic to talk about. C.S. Lewis, he said this of hell. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, Paul expands on who this destruction is for and what it will look like. He writes this, that Jesus will return in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. What is this separation and punishment based on? The first thing is this. This separation is based on faith. It's not based on anything worldly or anything outwardly, your your race, your gender, or your wealth. It's based on faith. Either you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or you have denied him and trusted in something else or someone else for your salvation. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. And again, Jesus says that two men will be in the field, one taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. One commentator said that these women are likely sisters or a mother and a daughter. Maybe you tell yourself that nothing will ever separate you from your loved ones or from your best friends or that you'll never let anything get between you and your family. And that may be true in this world, but on that day, Unless you share the same faith in Christ, you will find yourself suddenly and permanently separated. On the day of Christ's return, we do expect spouses to be separated. Parents and children, siblings and best friends, church members will likely be separated as well. Because nominal Christians those who are only Christian by name will be separated from those who are truly believers. In the parable of the wheat and tares, Jesus teaches us a sobering lesson that the wheat and tares, they were visibly undistinguishable as they grew side by side, but come harvest time, they will be identified and separated. And on the day of Christ's return, those who attend church and call themselves Christians without truly having repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ, will find themselves separated from true believers. I read earlier that Jesus will return, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's the criteria. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And it's important to note 
that Paul doesn't just say those who believe in the gospel, but he says obey the gospel. And that is because obedience is fruit and evidence of true faith. This is really hard to hear, but one Christian author said this, there will be churchgoers in hell. On the day of judgment, some preachers, evangelists, and leaders will stand before Christ with expectant smiles on their faces, but to their astonishment and horror, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Salvation is based on faith alone. And that separation is also based on faith alone. Once separated, that's not it either. Then there is destruction. Separation is based on faith. Punishment is based on works. I preached back in January how the believer's works is not how they get into heaven, but our works do determine what we get in heaven. In other words, our rewards. And I would say the same applies to unbelievers. I believe the Bible teaches that unbelievers' works, how they live their lives, determines their degree of punishment in hell. Here are a few verses that suggest this. Matthew 10, 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It'll be more bearable for some unbelievers than others, meaning it'll be less bearable, so there are degrees. Romans 2.5, But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Just like how believers can store up treasure in heaven, unbelievers can store up wrath in hell to different degrees. But don't get me wrong. I don't believe that more bearable means that hell could possibly actually be bearable for some. That's not the case because although there are degrees, the way the Bible describes hell for everyone there, it's these four things, and none of them are pleasant. Darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, an undying worm, and it's forever. Darkness. This darkness likely isn't literal. It's stating that there is an absence of light, which is a metaphor for God's favor and his goodness which is why the ironic benediction says, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. God's face is not shining on anyone in hell. There is darkness. There is none of God's favor, only his fury. There's also weeping and gnashing of teeth, meaning that it's not limited to physical torment. This weeping and gnashing of teeth describes the agonizing torment within your own conscience. Unquenchable fire and undying worm. This is a reference to unburied corpses after battle, which was one of the greatest disgraces at that time. Conquerors who wished to degrade their enemies would either burn their bodies or leave them out to rot. And of course, eventually that fire would go out which means that disgrace, although severe, would be temporary. However, in hell, it says that this fire is unquenchable and the worm is undying, meaning it's the worst death without end. Revelation 14, 11 says, 
The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It's also forever. Jonathan Edwards says this, Those in hell will be swallowed up by two infinites, an infinite God and his infinite wrath, and secondly, the infinite duration of their torment. How is this practical? There are two practical points I want to make before we close. The first is this. There will be perfect justice, so don't pursue vengeance. Biblical justice is seeking to right wrongs with the right means. Vengeance, on the other hand, is seeking to right wrongs with wrong. It's returning evil with evil. But Paul writes in Chapter 5, verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. But maybe you're thinking, if we keep on doing good and they keep on doing bad, how is that fair? Aren't they getting away with it? We think nothing will change. They'll never learn their lesson. I think we know that trying to do things the right way in this world can be frustrating and maybe even ineffective which is why it may be tempting to turn to sinful tactics and return evil with evil. But the return of Christ teaches us that there will be perfect justice. No one gets away with anything. Jesus sees everything that cell phones did not capture. What relatives never believe, what judges get wrong, and what politics muddle. What God calls us to do is to seek justice the right way. Even if it doesn't result in justice, we still never use vengeance. Why is that? At an early age, we're taught what is ours and what is not. If a kid tries to drink mom's coffee, the mom will say, no, that's mom's. Don't touch that. Or if a kid tries to grab another kid's toy, dad will say, don't touch that, put that back. It's not yours. When it comes to vengeance, Jesus is telling us, that's mine. Don't touch that. Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, we do not repay evil with evil, nor are we to be overcome with evil. We seek justice the right way, and we continue to do good. And if they continue to remain unchanged and they return evil for your good, Paul is actually saying we're heaping burning coals on their head, meaning they're actually only storing up more punishment and wrath for themselves. They are increasing that degree of punishment when they are in hell. Jesus knows who did you wrong. Jesus knows who got away with it here in this world. Jesus knows exactly what they deserve. And Jesus will hold everyone accountable on that day and he will make all things right. Leave vengeance to the Lord. And the second and final application point. Today isn't the day of the Lord. We're still here. 
So believe in the Lord today. Paul says that the people who will be trouble, who will be in trouble on that day when Christ returns, are those whose attitude is this in verse 3. There is peace and security. A hundred years before Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonian church, this city was actually very vulnerable and they experienced many threats. But after what is known as the Pax Romana, which is this extended period of peace in the Roman Empire, the Thessalonians experienced a kind of peace and safety that they never had before. And it was a new norm. The people enjoyed joy, tranquility, and prosperity. There was no fear of danger. Life was stable and secure. In other words, they thought they were fine. But Paul is saying, no, that, that mentality, there is peace and security, I'm fine. Paul is saying that is so foolish. Let me ask, is that you? Or is that somebody you know? If 2020 has taught us anything, it's this, that nothing is certain. And nothing is secure. And the only people who are secure when Christ returns are the people who trust in him before he returns. When Jesus returns, nothing can be done at that point. Don't be foolish and prideful to believe that you'll be fine or that you'll be able to persuade Jesus. Lately, we've seen a lot of protests. And protesting, it is a powerful tool to bring about change in policies and in our society. But no amount of protesting on that day will ever sway God. Nothing you say or do will change a holy God's policy towards sin. The only hope that you have is here and now, and that is repenting and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Here is the good news. Today is not the day of the Lord, and so there's time. I want you to know that salvation is freely offered to you by God's grace. If you would repent, acknowledge your sinfulness and ability to save yourself and place your full faith and trust in Jesus that he has done everything that we couldn't do. Hebrews 3.15 Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, you have heard his voice, and I pray that you would not harden your hearts. Receive Christ in this time now before he returns. We know, as Paul teaches us here, that there will be celebration for some, but a, celebration, a separation for others. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see the victory and celebration that we have in Christ. Help us to persevere faithfully until that day. Father God, I pray that you would also soften the hearts of those who hear your word this morning, that they would place their faith in Christ, that they may be found in the clouds on that day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.